the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's a brand new week. This is the Monday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about church, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. You need only to call us, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, I remind you, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great weekend. I want to personally thank all of you who are praying. I've been um, overwhelmed with, with emails and stuff. People have been praying for our women's retreat. They had a wonderful, wonderful time. People got saved. Uh, it was just really, really a sweet time. Weather was great. Everything was just perfect. So, uh, thank you all for your prayers. Um, yesterday here at the church, we had a guest speaker. I was here, but but uh, Pastor John Cowan, who was on the program here with me Friday, uh, shared with our church, and we had a really great time there as well. Tonight, uh, as always on Monday nights, we're going to have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies. Tonight, our ladies are going to be doing a retreat reflection. And uh, it's just sort of a way for the ladies who weren't able to go to come and uh, kind of experience vicariously what the retreat was all about. And it helps some of the ladies sort of process what the Lord was speaking to their hearts. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. They're actually going to do two Monday nights this tonight and a week from tonight uh, doing that. So um, that's at 7 o'clock. And then, of course, Pastor Ken will be teaching the men and our youth pastor, Pastor Matthew, uh, will be teaching the kids, so the uh, junior high and high school age kids. So thank you for your prayers. Let's go right to questions because we've had a bunch of them sent in. Uh, our first one says, it's from Kirby. Uh, Hello, I enjoy your show and have a question potentially for your show. It's not potential anymore, Kirby. It's a real question. Uh, The Pharisees and Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers, for that matter, were almost certainly aware of Jesus' whereabouts on the night and days leading up to his rest, the triumphant entry being an obvious example of his presence in Jerusalem. Jesus himself, at the time of the betrayal, even asked the Jewish officers and Roman soldiers why they didn't arrest him in the temple uh, where he'd been teaching every day. So my question is, why was it important or necessary for Jesus to be betrayed by Judas? I look forward to your response. Regards, Kirby. Thank you for the question, Kirby. A couple of things. Um, you know, the, the the Roman soldiers in particular, they didn't know who Jesus was. You'll remember when they came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, 
uh, as he was going back across the, the, the brook Kidron. Um, um, Judas arranged a sign. They wouldn't recognize Jesus. The, the prophet Isaiah says there was nothing remarkable about his appearance physically that would have pointed him out as being uh, the son of God. Um, but um, so, so his whereabouts uh, weren't all that easy. Had Judas not betrayed him, uh, then they wouldn't have known uh, where he was and they wouldn't have been able to get him at that particular point. But remember, God is sovereign in the background and he's directing all of these uh, events. So um, uh, Jesus would, would uh, leave Jerusalem, go to Bethany and spend the night. Uh, so he wasn't in, in Jerusalem all the time during that final week. Now, when Jesus asked them, um, when, when they came to get him, uh, well, what have I done wrong? Well, why, why didn't you arrest me? If, I've, if I'm guilty of these things, you could have arrested me at any time. And that's simply pointing to Jesus's innocence. Now, the, the answer to Judas and why he had to be the betrayer, I think, is significant. A couple of things. To fulfill prophecy is primarily um, the reason it was Judas. Now, Judas isn't named by name in the Old Testament prophecies, but he is referred to very specifically. Zechariah chapter 11, begin, beginning in verse 12. Uh, I told them, it says, if you think it best, give me my pay, uh, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And that's obviously prophetic, speaking of Judas and his betrayal. Uh, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they pay, priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And that's when Judas was convicted. He knew he betrayed innocent blood. He knew he was devastated. This was before uh, his death. Um, and and he, he took the money back to them. They wouldn't take it back. That was blood money. So uh, they, the Jewish leaders, um, sent it out to the potter's field, and that's where it was taken. Now, there's another prophecy as well, um, and this one comes from Psalm 41, where it's prophesied, Even my close friend whom I trusted, who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me, but you, O Lord, have mercy on me. Raise me up that I may repay them. Now, this is a psalm of David, and it's about David and his friend Ahithophel. But it's also a long-term prophecy. It was considered messianic uh, by Jews from the beginning. So it, it was considered messianic uh, and points to Jesus and, of course, uh, prophesies of Judas's betrayal. So while Judas isn't named by name in the Old Testament prophecies, um, Judas was the one who fulfilled those prophecies, somebody who was close to Jesus, who was a friend. So I hope that answers your question, Kirby. Good question. Prophecy uh, is specific, and there's details. And, um, you know, we would look at prophecy if we didn't believe in, in the miraculous and say, you know, nobody could know that information. But, of course, God knows that information. Here is a question from Wayne from our mobile app. He says, hi, folks, Pastor Ron. So Wayne says, hi. Thank you for answering my question about Matthew 1240 and Jonah on the Wednesday show. So this is a follow-up question. Is this scripture a parable? Thanks, Wayne. No, Wayne, it's not a parable at all. Jesus was warning those who were coming against him, those religious leaders who were plotting his murder, um, he's saying, nope, these are going to be the signs for you. Uh, I will be in the air three days and three nights. And in the Wednesday show, we talked about that being uh, a Jewish way of saying three days, um, not necessarily 72 hours, but three days. Any part of a day in Jewish thought would be just considered a day. And um, it is not at all uh, a parable. Jesus was simply saying, um, this is what happened to Jonah. This is what's going to happen to me. And uh, once he was in that tomb and rose on the third day, uh, I, I would think some of those religious leaders who were opposing Jesus would have had some second thoughts. So no, it's not a parable. It was Jesus prophesying or predicting that the story of Jonah applied to him and that would be a sign to them of the veracity of what he was saying. Here is a question. This one is from 
see here. Vincent from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ron, what is the true meaning of the parable of the sower? On the website gotquestions.org, it says it's about salvation. However, I heard it is not from another pastor, meaning not about salvation. What are your thoughts about gotquestions.org? Is it a good biblical reference? And what is your interpretation of the parable of the sower? Two things, Vincent, you asked. First, gotquestions is a a really good resource, very reliable. Uh, I actually have some really good friends. Gino Geraci is on the board and is one of the the, the people that answers the questions for God questions. He is a Calvary Chapel pastor. And I don't know how many of you have a good memory, but I had Gino on the show with me from our men's retreat uh, a year ago or a couple of years ago. I don't know how long ago it was now, two years ago. And um, uh, it, it's a wonderful, wonderful source. Now, I haven't gone to got questions to, to, to see if they say it's about salvation. So I'll take your word. But here's one place where I would disagree with them. Uh, this parable is not at all about salvation. And in fact, Jesus gives the definition. This is sort of the foundation parable of all the parables. If you don't, Jesus said, if you don't know the meaning of this, how are you going to understand the other parables? And that's why Jesus goes into great detail to define what this one is about. This is a parable, Vincent, about our responsibility as believers to scatter seed, and Jesus identifies the seed as the Word of God. So our responsibility as believers is to to share the Word of God everywhere we go, not worrying about what kind of soil it lands on. And, of course, the soils are a picture of human hearts, and that soil is, is, or the seed, rather, is falling on different types of human hearts. Some are hard, and some are choked out with weeds, and and, and Jesus says that's the cares and, and the fears and the worries of this world. So it, it's not, though, about salvation. Uh, we shouldn't even try uh, to, to wonder, well, which parts of those soils or which, which forms of those soils are, are not saved people. That's not the point of the parable. And here's one of the things that we get in trouble with, Vincent, when we're trying to understand parables. We read way too much into the parable. The reality is that the parables all have one primary point. Jesus was trying to reveal truth with parables. He wasn't trying to hide the truth. And it's clear that every time he told a parable, the people that he was speaking to knew that he was talking about them. And so here's what he's saying. Our job as believers is to scatter seed. Don't worry about what kind of heart it goes on. We're just sowing the word of God. We're throwing it everywhere. We're to sow it liberally or generously. And as we do that, then the Holy Spirit, it's his responsibility to prepare the hearts of those people who are going to be saved. So we sow the word of God. We don't worry about the kind of heart. It's not, we're not responsible for, for being effective in, in our presentation. We're just to declare the word. You know, so often we think that we have to defend the word of God. Uh, The reality is uh, we don't have to defend it at all. We just simply need to declare it. And Vincent, as we declare the word of God, uh, Paul says the the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. That's when the process of a supernatural transaction begins. Now, clearly there are people, as identified in the parable of the sower, who reject it right away. They hear it and they just don't want anything to do with it. Um, uh, And so it's not always going to fall on good soil or a good prepared heart. But as we sow it, the more times that we scatter the word of God, the more likely it is that our words are going to fall on a heart that has been prepared by the Holy Spirit uh, to to uh, prepare somebody for salvation. So that's all it's about, Vincent. It's about sowing the word and it's our responsibility to do so. You know, I was talking with Pastor John, who is here this weekend with me, about uh, why we Christians are so reluctant to share the gospel. You know, we live in a time uh, and a culture that's hostile to the gospel. You know, we're nice people typically. We don't want people to be offended, and we certainly don't want people to dislike us or say bad things about us. But remember, every single believer is responsible to share this treasure that's been deposited in us by virtue of us being born again. And it's something that we really need to learn to do. You know, the Apostle Paul, in writing to Philemon, he says, I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith 
so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. And all he's saying is this, if you aren't sharing the word of God with people in your lives, then you don't really get the value that that word has represented to you. So that's all it is. It's a parable about scattering the seed of God, the, the word of God. And if we do that, Vincent, that's the point Jesus is, is communicating. And obviously he would later tell his disciples their job is to go into all the world and, and make disciples of people, teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded them to do. So that's um, what the parable is all about. And it really isn't about, nor is it effective to worry about, well, this this soil that represents a heart, is that heart saved? We don't know. That's not the point of the parable. We just need to be prepared to tell everybody, give them a reason for the hope that we have, Peter says. And if we'll do that, then we're being faithful to the calling of God in our lives. Good question, Vincent. And again, I want to, to recommend to everybody gotquestions.org Pastor Gino is a Calvary Chapel guy and uh, they're, they're doing it's a wonderful wonderful ministry so thank you for that 340-9585 for your live calls and questions here is a question from Tracy from our email inbox she says I've never read the Bible cover to cover I wanted to know in what order do you recommend in reading the Bible to someone who is searching for a deeper knowledge? I ask because the Bible is not in chronological order. Is there a better way than just starting in Genesis and ending in Revelation? Um, Tracy, God bless you for this this hunger you've got to read the Bible. I, I, I can't recommend it enough. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if you're a new believer or not. There's a lot of people that have been believers for a long time who haven't read the entire Bible. But this is something that we all ought to do, and we ought to have the same hunger, Tracy, that you have. So be diligent and be disciplined so that you read it. Just one hint that I found when I was a brand-new believer and uh, I, I needed to know. I was like you. I was so curious, and I wanted to know more and, and, and go deeper with the Lord. I made it a point to read 10 chapters a day. That was, my, that was just my reading part. Now, I did some more studying in, in, in more specific areas, but, but my Bible reading was 10 chapters a day. Now, sometimes if you're in long chapters, that can be a lot. Uh, if you're in the prophetic scriptures, uh, sometimes it can be tedious. If you're in Leviticus or Numbers, there, there are times when it can be really, really tedious. But that's when the discipline comes in, and God rewards the discipline. So read it. If I read 10 chapters a day, now there were days when, for instance, a book in the New Testament would have only five chapters, then I'd just read those five, and that would be it. But if you if you do that, 10 chapters a day, you can read through the Bible twice in a year. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to read through it twice a year because I really wanted to get familiar with it. Now, the other thing, Tracy, is I wouldn't read it in chronological order. And I mean from the Genesis to, to Revelation, uh, it's 66 books. Um, but, but I would read one chapter or one, one of my sessions, five chapters would be in the Old Testament. And then I go into the New Testament and read five chapters in the New Testament. And uh, typically for me, I would start in Genesis and in John. And then I would um, um, go to the next book, Exodus. And I, I would read Joshua with Exodus. And, and so just those kind of things. But reading in the New Testament, um, um, you're, you're sort of covering everything. And you don't really get caught up in those tedious or boring passages that are really difficult to understand. Another thing, Tracy, that I would recommend is don't get too caught up in trying to understand everything that you're reading. If there's something that you don't understand, just make a note of it. I always have a legal pad uh, on my desk, um, you know, wherever I'm reading or whatever I'm doing. And if there's a question that comes up, I'm just going to make a note of it. The book and the, the, the chapter and the verse and, and um, not sure what this means. And then I would wait as I would read later. The Holy Spirit would often answer those questions for me. So 
Um, don't get too caught up in trying to dig out answers to, to difficult passages of Scripture. So I think that's the best way um, to read it. Um, the Bible is not in chronological order, but it has been written and placed in that chronology by the Holy Spirit for a reason. So I would read it that way. But remember, start in the Old Testament with Genesis and then go into the New Testament so you don't get stale or get too um, um, tied up in some of the more tedious parts of the Word. But boy, Tracy, thank you for the the encouragement, not just to me, I'm encouraged, but uh, to the encouragement to our audience as well. Read the Bible cover to cover. It, it has the words of life. It is life itself. And because it's supernatural and because the Holy Spirit lives in you, believe me, it will begin the process of transforming you, teaching you to think new. That's what Romans 12.2 says. Uh, we're not to be conformed any longer to the pattern or the schemes of this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the only place that our minds can be renewed, the only source of new thinking, biblical thinking, is being in the Word of God. So very, very important. Um, I, 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 that's the best counsel I could give you, and I think it will bless you abundantly. Reading the Bible is just getting to know it, getting familiar with it, getting an overview. And that's what we need to do. And the Old Testament is vital. The other thing I would say to you, Tracy, is don't look at it as one book. It's 66 books. And I think sometimes when people say, well, I've got to read it from Genesis and all the way to Revelation, it's because they're looking at it as one book. But this is 66 books written by 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years. And the majesty of this book, the, the, the supernatural wonder of this book will literally transform your life. Good question, Tracy. Thank you very, very much. See, we're inside five minutes already. Here is a question. This one is from Ginger. Can you tell me which of the soils in the parable of the sower refer to unsaved people? Ginger, I'm glad that question was first uh, on, on my list uh, because that, I answered it basically with the, the, the first question on the program today. Uh, some of the new questions that have come in uh, because it's not about uh, salvation at all. Now, clearly, the the, the hard soil uh, would, would, would represent a heart that is unsaved. But again, that's not the point of the parable. So the others um, were trying to read way too much into it. Uh, and I think the, the purpose of the parable is that we would be exhorted by the word of God, by Jesus himself, to go out and scatter the word of God wherever we go, wherever we go. And Ginger, like Tracy's uh, last question, um, you, you really can't share the Word if you're not reading the Word. So just keep reading. The parable of the sower uh, is one that Jesus himself defines for us. That's how uh, important it is. It is foundational. And uh, when you understand that, you, you get an idea of the the consistency of the symbolism in all of Jesus's parables. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Um, Merle says, I looked on your website and didn't see your investment in missions. Do you not believe in missions or supporting missionaries? Um, Merle, a couple of things. Obviously, we believe in in uh, people in the mission field. Our church has planted a lot of churches. I think our church, we planted 35 churches um, um, some in Mexico, uh, others uh, in, in Alaska. So we've sent people out. We don't call them missionaries. Uh, these are pastors. God's put a burden in their heart for a particular area. Uh, and then when I see that they are uh, qualified and or equipped or gifted to do it, then we help them prepare to go out and do the work of ministry. So we do, We that, that's kind of our mission field. But also, God has a different plan for every church. Uh, there's lots of churches uh, that support missionaries. 
um, our mission field is right here. God's made it really clear. We have a free medical clinic, a doctor's office. Um, we've had over 40,000 patients in the little more than 10 years that we've been open. 90% of those people, 90% of them uh, are not from our church. So uh, this is a mission field for us, and that's what God has led us to do. We also have the free school, which is not just for kids that come to our church. This is for people as they sign up and openings uh, develop. Um, we, we want kids from unsaved families as well. And because it's a free school, uh, obviously it costs a lot. And uh, because it costs a lot, um, um, God has chosen to put our resources in that direction. And then, of course, we do a lot of other things. So uh, our ministry is um, um, not in necessarily sending people out into the mission field, wherever that may be. Uh, we're trying to go out and establish the presence of churches and pastors in those areas. So that's our position on it, Merle. And we, we love the churches that support missionaries. It's a really, really good thing. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Monday show. We'd love your calls, 340-9585. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. The phones have been quiet. We'd love your participation. 210-340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Dewey. Hi, Pastor Ron. My family and I watched the Jesus Revolution movie. It was very inspiring and spirit-moving for me personally. Uh, I did not realize by Pastor Chuck Smith opening his door, uh, he gave way to another Christian revival. I've never experienced a revival, uh, nor do I understand how an awakening happens. My question is, what is an awakening and what does a biblical revival look like? Um, Dewey, you know me, so this is a question that I could spend uh, an entire program on. Uh, I'm glad you got to watch a Jesus Revolution movie. It gives me an opportunity to uh, exhort the people in the audience. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, it's still in the theaters, and I think it had a decent follow-up to its $15 million opening. Uh, it was third on the box office list uh, the week of its opening, and uh, that was far better than anybody expected. Uh, the movie is good. Uh, I, I do agree with you, Dewey. It's inspiring. Uh, and I think one of the things that it does for us, I, I think the whole Calvary Chapel story, uh, one of the things it does for us is realize that God can appear right in the middle of, of impossible-looking circumstances and use people who also appear to be completely ill-equipped to, to be used by God to do anything. And I think that's the story of Calvary Chapel. Uh, this is the, the movie about the Jesus people movement, um, starting about 1968 through 1972 was sort of the height of it. But the real beauty of the Jesus movement is that uh, it produced fruit that is still being produced. I am um, um, a, a bit of that fruit. Uh, I wasn't there. I'm old enough to have been there during those days, but I wasn't there because I wasn't saved. But um, I was sort of grafted into the Calvary Chapel movement uh, many, many years later. And and what I'm doing is really building on a foundation that Pastor Chuck Smith laid. You know, nobody starts fresh. We're all building on somebody else's foundation and that foundation for for us here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio um, was laid during the, the Jesus People uh, revival. So, uh, you know, Pastor Chuck, a struggling pastor. Uh, church was tiny. He was getting about ready to give up and quit. And uh, God said, just a little longer, and then, then suddenly hippies came into his life, and they started getting saved. Um, Pastor John, who was here Sunday and on this program on Friday, uh, he was part of all of that. It was neat talking to him this weekend. 
because for him, the Jesus Revolution movie was um, really emotional. I mean, it, it just brought back memories that came flooding back. Uh, and, and he was was visibly moved by it. Now, with regard to your, your questions, um, you said you never ex- have experienced a revival, uh, nor do you understand how it happens. That's the beauty of it, Dewey. It's a sovereign move of God's Spirit. Nobody can plan one. I know we have a lot of people that say, we're having a revival this weekend. That's not a revival. It's not an awakening. But, but when God moves on the hearts of people, you ask what does a, a, a biblical revival look like? It looks like um, in, the, in the, the hippie days, uh, kids repenting of sin. Um, you know, people were on drugs and they were doing living horrible lives. They were the, the, the outcrest, sort of the, um, the lepers of, of the 60s and 70s. Um, and yet it was it was right in their midst that God's spirit began to move. And and literally the, the, the defining thing about a revival is changed lives. I know people that went into the, that tent and it wasn't a tent revival. They just had to build a tent because the, the numbers, the sure numbers of people that the spirit was bringing overwhelmed the facility that they had. Uh, I know people who. Were, were, went in there high on LSD, their minds being absolutely blown uh, by the psychedelic drug, um, and and walk into that tent and immediately sober up. Immediately sober up. That's what happens when the Spirit moves. Uh, Pastor John was saying in, our me- in the message that he gave here at the church yesterday, um, he, he was saying there, there's times when you could say hi to somebody, hey, bro, and, and they'd fall down. How do I get saved? How can I get saved? And, and see, that's just God doing the work. It's not a brilliant presentation of the gospel. It's just the Spirit of God was moving with such power. And when that happens, the first thing, Dewey, that you're going to see is repentance. People are going to become aware of two things. First, they're going to become aware of their sin. And then they're going to become aware of their need to be saved from that sin. And so it changes lives. When there is a revival, lives are changed. Now, with regard to the difference between an awakening and a, and a revival, um, I think most of us, do, do, no matter what word we're using, I think most of us sort of are thinking the same thing. Um, in my mind, uh, an awakening is more when people are getting saved. A revival, I think, would affect the church. And I think, Dewey, this is where we all ought to be praying. Uh, you said you've never experienced a revival. Um, I, I think we can all experience a revival every day. I'll quote J. Vernon McGee. Uh, he said, you know, if you want to pray for revival, draw a circle on the ground, stand in that circle and say, Lord, let the revival begin inside this circle. Because every one of us can experience a revived heart a renewed heart, a transformed heart. We can experience that instantly because that's exactly the will of God. And the way to do that is to say, Jesus, forgive me for my spiritual laziness. Jesus, forgive me for the way I've allowed sin to creep into my life. Forgive me, Lord. And whatever the issues are, whatever the Spirit is convicting you of, then repent and throw yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be used for your glory. That's my only goal. I want to be used for your glory. That's what I think a revival, and that deals with the church. When that happens, I think then that leads to an awakening. The Bible says judgment begins at the house of God. And I think when Paul says for us to examine our hearts daily to see whether we're in the faith, when we do that effectively, do we? Then uh, we're going to go out and we're going to tell other people about Jesus. And that's um, uh, that's the difference between the two, at least from my perspective. Um, but the most important thing is make sure your heart is right with God and then be obedient. And the power of the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 5.32, will come upon you. Good question, Dewey. One more exhortation for everybody out there. If you haven't seen the Jesus Revolution movie, please go see it. It's really the story of of um, a revival beginning in a movement of God that's lasted now 
uh, well over 50 years. Um, we have, I don't know, 15, 1,600 churches, uh, Calvary chapels all over the world. Every single one of us are related to or tied into that move of God's Spirit from 1968 and, and forward. Good question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Priscilla. She says, "Is the Methodist Church really Christian?" Um, Priscilla, the answer is yes and no. Um, the United Methodist Church almost assuredly is not Christian. They've sort of thrown away the Bible. They've thrown away doctrine. Um, um, they've embraced same-sex marriage. Um, uh, in in uh, they've ordained homosexual pastors and clergy, um, so 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 the United Methodist Church, by and large, and and remember, I, I have to speak in generalizations here, but uh, God has a remnant even among the United Methodist Church. But for the most part, these are not people that are born again, and I, I include the pastors of those churches. Uh, because they want nothing to do with holiness. They want nothing to do with the Word of God. They're more impacted by the um, the, the culture that we live in. Having said that, um, there are Methodists, Wesleyan Methodists. I had a meeting uh, just a couple of weeks ago with two older guys. And for me to say older guys, that's a big deal. These guys were older than me. Um, but they were they, they described themselves as being Wesleyan Methodists. And they were faithful to the Word of God, and they loved Jesus with all of their heart. And what's happening in the Methodist Church is heartbreaking to them. But, you know, it's who they are. It's how they were raised. And um, um, so the, the, the Wesleyan Methodists um, would, would be almost, uh, the majority would be born-again believers. These two uh, men certainly were. One was named Ron and Don. If you guys happen to be listening, God bless you. And thank you for spending that time with me. Uh, but um, I, I think if you look at the United Methodist Church, I, I said, you know, I know this can't happen. But when I was talking to Ron and Don, I said, um, you know, if John Wesley could look at the United Methodist Church today, he'd be turning over in his grave. And of course, he's with Jesus, so that couldn't happen. But they both got a smile on their face and acknowledge that that's exactly true. Thank you. I appreciate that question. Here is a question from our mobile app that came in from Debbie. Pastor Ron, following up on the on the question about the movie The Jesus Revolution, it made me think of the timing of the movie's release as it coincided with the revival at Asbury. I think it's God's great timing and a way for him to get his revival out quicker because not everyone could get to Asbury. What do you think? Debbie, I, I think there's no coincidence. God is sovereign. There's no coincidence. And in fact, let me share you this. I know this because I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor and was part of the group reviewing. We reviewed this movie uh, here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, um, I don't know, two, three months ago. And, and and the movie was supposed to have been released even before that. And there were just these delays. And um, when it was finally ready to go, well, it just so happened that the, the, the Spirit was moving in Asbury. And everybody was talking about revival. So I would agree with you um, that this is a movie that's going to get people thinking. If God can change them, if God can use them, then God can use me. And please, please, please make no mistake. That's what the Calvary Chapel movement really is. It's a bunch of misfits, a bunch of nobodies. Paul says God shows the, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the, the weak things to shame the strong, the despised things, even the things that are not. And I know these Calvary Chapel pastors, and as one of their number, I can say we are a bunch of us, things that are not. And yet God used them. And, and I know these guys and I love them. But you look at them. I used to say when we go to our Calvary Chapel pastors conferences um, before Pastor Chuck died, there'd be 1,500 men in a room. And if you'd look around and you didn't know anything about it and you just said, OK, what do you think these guys are? You'd probably think it was a parole meeting. Because none of these guys look like pastors. I mean, there's nothing. I know Greg Laurie, 
and and uh, Greg was a, is a not was Greg is a goofball. I say that in a loving way. He is a funny guy. He's uh, got a great sense of humor, and and if you were just talking to him somewhere at first, until he started sharing Jesus, you wouldn't think of him as a believer in Jesus Christ. You'd just think it was a good guy, quick wit. He's immensely gifted in a lot of areas, um, but he's just an ordinary guy, um, and that's true of so many of the people. Uh, if you saw the movie, Debbie, and you did, um, uh, Lonnie Frisbee, uh, you talk about a flawed servant. Um, Lonnie was confused about a lot of things. Lonnie came out of a gay lifestyle. He returned to a gay lifestyle. People say, well, how could God use him? Well, God uses broken folks. And to the to the uh, Lord's glory, Lonnie uh, repented and gave his life to Jesus just before he died. Um, and and he, he understood what he missed out on. And yet God used him. Why? Because Lonnie was there at the time. And God gifted him. And um, um, if God can use men like him, then certainly God can use you, Debbie, and God can use me. So uh, I think you're exactly right. There's no coincidence here at all. Uh, I think that uh, um, in these last days, and we are in the last of the last days, I think in these last days, we need to understand that Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon. He's coming soon, and we need to be ready. And since most of us are praying, God, pour out your spirit one more time before you come. One more time. That ought to be in our prayers daily, but then to accompany our prayers, to empower our prayers, then we need to be doing our part, and that's sowing seed or scattering the word of God wherever we go. Debbie, great, great comment. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question, Don says. How can I get to know the Holy Spirit in the same way I know Jesus? Don, um, that's a little bit of a complicated question. Um, I don't think, Don, that we're to get to know the Holy Spirit the same way that we know Jesus. Now, here's the way the Trinity works. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, The Father sent the Son to reveal the Father's nature, the Father's character. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. He's the radiance of the glory of the Father. But see, we can't see that glory. We can't see or experience that, that, that radiance um, because God the Father is spirit. And, 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 and he said repeatedly in the Old Testament that nobody can see his glory and live. So what happens is he sent the Son to reveal the Father. So Jesus was the revelation of the Father. When Jesus was getting ready to, to, to be crucified, he told his disciples, don't worry, I won't leave you alone, I won't leave you as orphans, but I will send another me. The, the translations say comforter or counselor, but it's another me, exactly me, exactly the same, except not in a physical substance. I'll send the Holy Spirit and he will be in you. And the Holy Spirit's job, Jesus said, is to reveal Jesus. So you've got both ends of the Trinity, the Father and the Spirit, and their job is to invest in Jesus. Now, the Father sends the Son to reveal his character. The Holy Spirit comes to reveal Jesus. Now, it's natural because Jesus became one of us that we can identify with him. Just as it's unnatural to identify with God, the Father who is Spirit, it's unnatural for us to identify with the Holy Spirit because there's nothing that we can imagine or nothing that we can picture in terms of, of, of being more familiar with him the way we can be familiar with or get to know Jesus. So I think the way, to answer your question, the way to get the fullness of the Holy Spirit is to be obedient to the Word of God, be obedient to what Jesus tells us to do, And as you're being obedient, the Holy Spirit is going to continue to reveal to you the person of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's never going to come front and center and say, okay, here I am, let's get to know each other. The Holy Spirit is always going to take your hand. And what he's going to do when he holds your hand, he's going to take your other hand and he's going to put your hand in Jesus' hand. And the Holy Spirit will sort of puff out his chest. He doesn't have a chest, but you know what I mean. And then he'll say, I've done my job. So Jesus is the way that we can get to know God the Father. 
and Jesus is the way, or the result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in drawing us to Jesus. So, Don, I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, one other comment, and, and maybe this will be a little more easy to understand. Um, when we pray, I've had people on this program over the years ask, well, who should we pray to, the Father or to the Son or to the Spirit? Should we pray in the name of Jesus? What should we do? And, and I tell people, prayer is talking. Jesus is the one who's going to walk with us until the end of the age. He said, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And so when we have a conversation, we need to have a conversation with another human. Jesus is another human who happens to be also God. So Jesus makes it personal. Jesus makes it relational. And that's why I say we talk to Jesus. We pray to Jesus. It's carrying on a conversation with Jesus, having fellowship with Jesus. And when we do that, then the fullness of the triune God is going to be revealed to you as well as the purpose of God in and for your lives. So great question, Don. Be obedient and um, believe me, the Holy Spirit will be um, deeply intimate. Here's a question from Jesse. What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? Um, Jesse, in spirit, first of all, let me see what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean in tongues. Um, there's some really bad teaching out there that said worshiping in spirit means that we got to pray in tongues. That has nothing to do with what worshiping in spirit really means. Um, what it means is that we've got to worship uh, the Lord uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the character, the nature, the name of God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, and we've got to worship him, of course, in truth. There is no worship um, that, that is pleasing to God if it's not true worship. I think one of the problems with churches, charismatic churches, um, Pentecostal churches, Assembly of God churches, uh, and, and they're doing all kinds of crazy things and blaming it on the Spirit, none of that is of the Spirit of God, and none of it then is true worship. So to worship God in spirit and in truth means that we embrace the truth of Jesus Christ and our worship, our singing, our praise, even our, our uh, exalting God when we're praying has to be accompanied by a life that's, that's bathed in the truth, a life that is walking the truth. And when that happens, we're worshiping God both in spirit and in truth. So that's what it means, Jesse. You know, one of the things people forget, in the Old Testament especially, when um, worship is mentioned, something always dies. And I think for our worship to be effective, something has to die. That something is us. Now, not physically, of course, but we got to die to ourselves. Jesus said to be my disciple, you must pick up your cross daily. The cross is an instrument of execution. Deny yourself and follow him. That's what it means to die to yourself. I'm going to pick up my cross my instrument of execution. I'm going to walk in the death of Jesus Christ every day so that I can walk in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be obedient in the process. And that's when, Jesse, we're really worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Now, I I love the fact that we do worship. Uh, yesterday at our, our uh, church, uh, we had the ladies' worship team from uh, the retreat, women's retreat, do the worship as we do every every year after the women's retreat. And it was just so wonderful. Um, on this stage, you know, we had um, some of the, the, the adults who were on the, on, the, on the worship team. But I was looking at the microphones, and, um, you know, I, I, there's, there's four girls that were singing on the worship team that I've mm -hmm. known their whole lives. They're young now, um, from senior in high school to in their 20s. Um, and and I've known them their whole lives. For me to see them on that stage, worshiping God with all of their hearts, with their hands raised, and and their voices praising the Lord, I told Paul. I said, "Look at those girls, Paula." And I said this, and I said, "I don't know if they can sing a note." And of course, they can, or they wouldn't have been on there. But 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 here's what I can see: I can look at their faces, and look at the joy, and see. 
that they were born to do that very thing. That was worship in spirit and in truth. They were thrilled to be able to be used by the Lord. They were singing with the joy of the Lord, and they were singing with hearts that were exceptionally grateful to God for what he's done. And it was just wonderful to see it. As a pastor, it just about doesn't get any better than that. You're watching kids that you watch born, and you're watching them now as young women, and you see they love Jesus with all of their heart. They don't care about being cool kids. They're not worried about being impacted or affected by the world that we live in. They love Jesus, and they want everybody to know it. And we had the opportunity to worship in spirit and in truth publicly at the women's retreat and then yesterday here at church at Calvary Chapel. So, Jesse, that's what it means. It doesn't mean to speak in tongues. It means to worship God uh, in, in the Spirit of God, in the power of the Spirit. And we're only in the power of the Spirit if we're being obedient to that which is true. We can't embrace the, 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 the lies of this world that claim to be true. We have to hold on to the truth of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. The perfect man who was sacrificed for the sins of the world, for your sins and mine. Jesse, thank you for that question. Remember, tonight our ladies are going to be sort of debriefing their retreat experiences. That's at 7 o'clock. You can watch that at calvaryessay.com at 7. Uh, men and the youth are also going to be in Bible studies tonight. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.